All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You may recognize this verse, uh, hopefully anyway. Some of you that were here on Wednesday nights for our, our study in um, a couple of different series, and I, I kind of worked off of this verse a little bit, but there's another phrase I want to focus on here today that we've not focused totally on yet. Notice uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, notice verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's a couple of series that I'll just remind you of, as I mentioned a moment ago. First of all, is uh, cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. We t- took a look at uh, various aspects of that. But also, uh, we had a short series on correcting imperfections. I want to notice here again this statement, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I want for us to focus in on that phrase and make sure we understand it. We're, we are not talking about sinless perfection. I want you to notice me 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We are not talking about sinless perfection here in this lifetime. There are some who believe that after a, after a certain amount of time, they're, they're sanctified perfectly here in this lifetime. They reach this, essentially, a plateau of sanctification, so they no longer sin. They, they, yeah, they might make mistakes every once in a while, but they no longer sin. So you provoke them, and you find out they still do have a sin nature. But this says here, First uh, John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Notice, we are self-deceived if we say that, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, now the word confess does not mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The word confess means to see it as God sees it. If I see my sin as God sees my sin, then I see that my sin nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You notice, we go directly to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We do not have to go to a human priest to confess those sins. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. That's pretty serious to make God a liar. So obviously we need to acknowledge the fact that we still have sin we need to deal with, as we'll uh, discuss that. As far as the, the phrase, perfecting holiness... In the fear of God, the word perfecting is a, speaks of a process of becoming holy. We are not immediately holy at the time of salvation. It would be nice if God would deal with us that way. But again, as, as, we, as I just mentioned, in this lifetime, we will still deal with that sin nature within us. This word perfecting talks about finishing, completing, and consummating this process of, of, of holiness. To finish or complete so as to leave nothing wanting or lacking. I want you to see something here in Ephesians chapter 4 in relation to this word perfecting. Perfecting. In case you did not realize it, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm perfecting the saints through the word word of God and the ministry of the word of God. As it says here in Ephesians chapter 4, let's look at a little context, verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high... He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first in the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Notice it says again, he gave gifts to men. Verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets. All right, so those are foundational gifts according to Ephesians chapter 2. Prophets, apostles, they were part of the foundation. Of course, we're talking about the New Testament scriptures as being the foundation of the New Testament church. And some evangelists. Now, I believe in some cases, in many cases, we've misunderstood the office, the ministry of evangelist. An evangelist is not one who simply travels around from church to church, preaching, filling pulpits and all those kinds of things, preaching special meetings and all that. That's not necessarily a Bible evangelist. The biblical evangelist is a missionary. The biblical evangelist is one who's going out and starting churches, working on starting churches. I believe very clearly in Scripture, that's the the ministry of Philip in the book of Acts and so on. I believe we've confused this idea of evangelist. And it says here, some pastors and teachers. So these are ministry gifts given, notice verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. Notice again that word perfecting. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God, as we saw back in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
Notice, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Well, we hire you, pastor, to do the work of the ministry. That's not what that passage says. My job, my task as a pastor is to equip you, to perfect you for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice, if I'm doing my job right in perfecting the church, then you're going to be encouraging and building one another up in the church's ministry. That's the, the job of the pastor, the task of the pastors for the work of the ministry, perfecting the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up, and the strengthening of the body of Christ. This church should be stronger, not because of the preacher, but because of the entire church family, encouraging and strengthening and edifying one another. Notice the goal here in verse 13. Till we all come, not just some, till we all come in the unity of the faith. Believing the same things. That's why the teaching of the church is so important. So that we are all, all in agreement scripturally as to what we should believe. And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice the standard is not the preacher. The standard of this is not someone else in the church. Some old saint in the church. The standard is Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. The stature and fullness of Christ. He's the measure how many times do we compare ourselves with one another? Well, I'm not so bad like a preacher, brother so-and-so. That's the, I, the brother so-and-so is not the standard. All right, so you measure yourself according to the, the stature, the, the spirituality of Jesus Christ, and guess what? We all have a little room for growth, don't we? That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Our former pastor of ours pictured it this way. I wonder which way the wind's blowing today. You, you think about modern-day Christianity. Some new teaching comes along into an independent Baptist church, mind you. Some new teaching comes along, and everybody's, Amen, preacher, without ever checking what the Bible actually says. I, I just listened to a reminder of some things here on a preacher years ago who preached, an independent Baptist preacher, big-name preacher in America. All over America, he preached on the eternal humanity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has always had a physical body as God the Son. That is Mormon heresy. But it was coming from Baptist pulpits. And Baptists and pews were saying, Amen, preacher! You could hear it in the background. Amen, preacher! God the Father loved Jesus so much that he made all kinds of little Jesuses. God help us when we tolerate heresy and False doctrine in Baptist churches. No more children tossed to and fro. By the way, you should get very nervous, very nervous when a preacher says, no one's ever seen this before. That's what cults say. Now let me point out something. A difference of this is a preacher calling us back to what we used to preach. Because of decades hearing the same things over and over again, people start believing lies. Again, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Notice how they do this. By the slight of men, cunning craftiness, wherein they lie in wait to deceive. This is why we use a lot of Bible in this church. Because I want you to know this doctrine is coming from the word of God and not what men say. That's exactly how they do this. You might as well close your Bible in a lot of Baptist churches because you aren't going to be looking at it again the entire service. That's how this false doctrine slips in. This is how it all comes in. Notice again, the perfecting of the saints. That's the task, the responsibility of pastors and teachers and evangelists today. Notice Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So let's look at this idea of perfecting. We are not perfect yet. We still have room for growth, as I've been emphasizing. Philippians 3, verse 12. Verse 11, he says, that I might, by any means, if by any means, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's not talking about something that's uncertain. What Paul is saying is, I'm living for the resurrection. I'm striving for the day when I'm going to have a resurrected body. Verse 12. Not as though I had already attained... Either were already perfect. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing this, is under house arrest for preaching the gospel. I mean, here's a spiritually minded man. But yet the Apostle Paul even says, I have not arrived. 
I am not yet perfect, but I follow after that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I have not yet arrived at what I'm striving for. But this one thing I do, not many things that we dabble in, by the way. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, forgetting the things that are in the past, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, I am striving, I am working towards that which I've been apprehended for. I'm wanting to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Notice verse 11. Verse 10 gives us a clue as to what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. He's talking about the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Of course, uh, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, various passages deal with Melchizedek. And notice he's teaching some things about Melchizedek here in relation to the priesthood of, of Jesus Christ. Of whom, verse 11, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. Now, I understand there's times when there's dull preaching. I, 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 I try hard, very hard, I labor at this, that I don't come before you and have dull, boring preaching. You know why? One reason. Not, not just because it's the Word of God and I, I, we should uh, take it seriously, but because our, uh, our college president always emphasized to us preacher boys, it's a sin to bore people with the Bible. I don't want to bore people with the Bible. I, I, I don't want to sin against God. At least that's what we were told anyway. Notice it says, you're dull of hearing. It's not always the preaching. Can I point out here that we could have somebody dancing all over the place preaching, running, all over, running the aisles, and you could still not get it because you're dull of hearing. I mean, I could stand on my head preaching, and you might not get something because you have, you're dull of hearing. The whole clue is, though, that... Preaching is not supposed to be for entertainment. That's the problem in our modern day. Well, I'm not entertained. So I'm not going to go back to that church. I'm going to go watch my TV preacher. We've bought this mentality, you go to church to be entertained. Can I point out here, that's not the idea of the church. Notice, you're dull of hearing. And I really believe it's by Satan's design. Do you realize that when you watch something on the TV, things are changing every few seconds? Things aren't changing up every few seconds up here. So we're going to have to pay attention on purpose. Notice it says, for, when, for the time you ought to be teachers. That's not talking about a Sunday school class. That's talking about being able to take the word of God, that you know what you believe so you can share it with somebody else. That's not necessarily talking about a, a Sunday school class or whatever. Notice it says, For the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. There become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. I just thought of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The things that you have heard in the midst of many witnesses, the same teach thou to other men also. You, you think about this. You're supposed to take what you hear and pass it on to somebody else. That's why we need to pay attention to the truth of, of God's word. For the time, you ought to be teachers. But however, the problem is you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. We've got to go back to the basics again because you haven't gotten it. That's the context here. He's, the writer of Hebrews has said, I want, to, I want to teach you other things about Melchizedek. But I can't because you've become dull of hearing. You can't move on forward spiritually in the teaching of the Word of God. I have so much I want to teach you, but you're not ready for it. I can't, I can't deliver it to you. Uh, there, is, there is an aspect that you know, the preacher has to be careful of not unloading the wagon. You know, I, I think of new pastors. Boy, they've got all these things they want to preach to this new church. Uh, We've got to be careful about unloading all the wagon at once because people may not be ready for it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about there's years passing... And you're still not able to take somebody to the Bible and show them what the Bible says. Are you able to do that? If somebody comes to you and asks you a question, do you know how to find the answer? Yeah, I called my preacher. 
Now, you should be able to take the word of God after, time of, after, after your salvation, after years pass, you should be able to take people to the Bible and say, here's what the Bible says. Not, not what I say, not what the preacher says, not what our church believes. Here's what the Bible says. And notice, instead of being able to move on, they're still needing the first principles and become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Notice they're not able to handle greater teaching of the word of God. It says here in uh, verse 13, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Now, I've, I've got a new habit going again. I, I used to do this. I have a new habit going again here of having chocolate milk in the morning. I'm loving my little refrigerator in there so I can keep my milk in there. What I did not do this morning, though, was go to the refrigerator and get a gallon of grass. I'm so thankful that that cow pre-digested that grass, converted it to milk, so I could pour out white milk that I made brown in my cup. Here's, I should just, get, should just get the brown milk, though. But here's, here's the thing. Milk is pre-digested food. Can I make, give you an observation here? What you're getting right now is pre-digested. I've studied it through. I've, I've been working on it for hours. What you do with it now determines whether or not you get meat or milk. See, there's, there's a lot of people who will listen to the preaching of God's word in these days, and they get nothing practical out of it. Why? Because they don't put it to practice in their lives. This is not, again, about entertainment. This is the truth of God that you need in your life. Notice again, it says here, he's unskillful in the word of righteousness. Why? Because he doesn't have skill in putting it into practice. Application is one of the most important aspects of the preaching and teaching of God's word. Notice, he's a babe. You might as well have a baby bottle. You think about this. Everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. If, if all you can stand and handle are the basics of Christianity, you need to start growing up and moving on. That's what the Bible says here. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. We're talking about spiritual maturity after time. Even those who by reason of use... Notice how we become skillful in the word of, of righteousness. By using the word of God. Practical application to our lives. Notice, they have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Their senses. All right, so we have five senses. Let me ask you, do you always pass things by the word of God as to what you see? In fact, Psalm 101 says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Job says, I've made a covenant with mine eyes. All right, so are we using the word of God to exercise our senses of, sense of eyesight? The things you watch on TV. Does it agree with this book right here? Anytime my wife and I try watching a new video, we can usually tell within a minute, two minutes at the most, whether or not we're going to watch that video. It doesn't take long at all. It does not take long at all. Why? Because we're, we're testing out this video whether or not it's true to the word of God. And as soon as we hear God's name, sorry, I guess we're done with that video. Why do they have to ruin a good video? I mean, we've, we've said that many times. The video is good, and then all of a sudden they, they throw in this, and it's like, God help us. Our senses need to be exercised to discern good and evil. That's evil. But how many times people just keep watching something, whether God's name is used once, twice, I've used this before. I could not listen to Donald Trump's speeches when he was running for re-election. I tried listening to his Omaha speech. When he used God's name in vain, I'm sorry, I can't listen anymore. I am not going to tolerate God's name being taken in vain. And supposedly he's some good evangelical leader. God help us. We need our senses exercised. The things that we hear. The things that we hear. All right, so what are you listening to on the radio? Your cheating heart has told on you. This is your country music. Your dog died and your truck broke down. It's like, that's not edifying music. Are your ears exercised to discern good and evil? Boom, 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 boom. So-called Christian rock. 
I'm sorry, it's not Christian if it's rock. Oh, they just add a few Christianized words. Some of those songs are written so that there's two markets that they can market it on. They write a love song to their whoever special important person, whether it's a wife or not, you don't know. But they word it in such a way so that it can also make its way onto the Christian charts. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. That was on secular and Christian markets. Why? Because you light up my life. God help us. Our ears need to be exercised, our senses. You think about all the taste. All right, let's just go there. My tongue has never tasted alcohol except maybe in cough medicine when I was a child. Why, why do they put alcohol in cough medicine? I, I've never figured that out. Yeah, I'm going to drink bottles of this, this cough medicine. It's like, your taste. My tongue, thank God, has never tasted beer. My tongue has never tasted strong drink. This is never a a temptation to me. I've never tasted it. That's not to judge anyone else. But is your tongue tasting it yet? Our senses, notice, need to be exercised to discern both good and evil. Oh, by the way, you notice there's no gray areas there. It's either good or it's evil. There's no middle. Oh, it's amoral. Music is amoral. There's there's no moral. No, No, it's moral. Everything is either good or evil. Now, can I point out here? There's times when you have to determine whether or not it's good or best. There's some good things we can be involved in, but it may not be the best things. We need our senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Notice to me 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to show you, again, in uh, relation to what we just saw, the importance of the word of God as far as this perfection, this perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, let's look at verse 15. Actually, a continued sentence from verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned. All right, so the teaching of the word of God. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The modern Bibles often reword that and say all scripture that is given by inspiration of God. In other words, not everything is given by inspiration of God. So there may be some things as far as history and science or whatever that's not inspired. So let me ask you, if you can't trust the history and science of the Bible, how can you trust the spiritual teaching of the Bible? Notice, it is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable. Does the Bible ever become unprofitable? Absolutely not. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Bible never loses its inspiration and is profitable. It's always useful for doctrine. It's, doctrine is teaching of what is right. That's why we need the teaching of the word of God. Notice also, not just the teaching of what is right, notice for reproof. Telling us what's not right. There goes the preacher there. He's always stepping on my toes. That's because God, the Holy Spirit, stepped on my toes. Who would you rather have? Me stepping on your toes or the Holy Spirit? Now, hopefully the Holy Spirit's doing it as well, bringing conviction to your heart if something's not right. That's reproof. Reproof tells us, shows us what's not right. Notice for correction, how to get things right, and for instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. Notice that. That's what the word of God wants, God wants to do with his word. That the man of God may be what? Verse 17, may be what? Perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's the standard that God is striving for in giving us his words. That's why we need the teaching of the word of God. Again, perfecting is the process of becoming holy. But what is holiness, though? There is such a un- misunderstanding of holiness in our day. We, we have this watered-down understanding of what holiness is. All right, so let me ask you. Does God, does God tolerate sin at all? God is of purer eyes than to behold things that are evil. 
All right, so when you understand that's what holiness is, that tells us that God has a higher standard of holiness than we often think of. Holiness is a purity of heart or dispositions. Sanctified affections. Here's a word that we don't understand anymore because we don't use it anymore. It's piety. Oh, he's so pious. That used to mean something. Now it's something used in derogatory terms. Oh, he's, he's, he's more holy than thou. No, piety speaks of being right with God as, as much as we can in our, in our uh, human condition. Piety, moral goodness, holiness. Ultimately, holiness means to be separated or sanctified unto the holy God. That's quite a high standard, isn't it? Now, what, what we're talking about here is practical holiness, not God's holiness, though. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Did you hear what I just said? Without holiness, there's no way you're going to see the Lord someday. Whoa. So who can see God then? Uh, That's why we need God's holiness imputed to us, God's righteousness imputed to us through Jesus Christ. We're talking about practical holiness. That's a command. Follow holiness. Or we could say follow after holiness. Notice me, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Again, stay with me. I'm laying a foundation here for us to understand that phrase. Romans chapter 6, notice verse 19. We're talking about practical holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Notice verse 19 of Romans chapter 6. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. We were talking, joking earlier. It's like, oh, horrible getting old. That's not what we're talking about with infirmity of the flesh here. Infirmity of the flesh, we're talking about those weaknesses of our sinful nature. All right, so when, when we became believers in Christ, when the children of God, we received a new nature. Christ's nature was imputed to us, implanted within us. But I want you to consider here, though, we're talking about this old nature that continues until the day that we are glorified. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, notice that statement, to iniquity unto iniquity. Even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Pause there just a moment. What's Paul saying there? All right, you remember back before you were saved? You, you remember all the partying that you did on the weekends and how devoted you were to your sin. Paul says, all right, you remember how much you were devoted to your iniquity unto iniquity in the past? Do that and more so for God's righteousness. We're talking about practical holiness. Why is it that so many give a half-hearted effort towards their Christianity when as an unbeliever they gave their whole heart to the wickedness of this world? Uh, I think God recognizes there's a, there's a discrepancy here. Notice, as ye have yielded your members to servants, uh, servants uh, to uncleanness, sin, and to iniquity, unto iniquity, what is iniquity? Read it this way. Iniquity is inequity. Did you catch that? Notice the similarity of the words there. Inequity. So in other words, what we're, doing, what we're saying is when we live in sin as believers in Christ, we are being unequal with God. We're not giving God all he demands and expects out of us. That's inequity. Or we could say iniquity. Even so, now yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. My hands are unto holiness. My eyes are unto holiness. My ears are unto holiness. As we've given ourselves to sin in the past, notice, even now, yield your members, servants to righteousness. Notice the goal, unto holiness. By the way, we should be gradually increasing in holiness so that when God calls us home, There's no big change on the day when we stand before Jesus Christ. If if some of these people who are living in sin today are truly saved, if, I'm not judging their their salvation, but if they truly are saved, guess what's going to happen on the day when they're called home to stand before Jesus? There's going to be a radical change in their lives. They may not even recognize themselves. Think about that. 
When ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Well, I thought they did some good. I did some good things before I was saved. Notice, you're free from God's kind of righteousness. We're not talking about self-righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? Very interesting question there. You remember the stuff that you're ashamed of now? All that stuff in the past? What fruit did you have from that? Lasting fruit. For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God. Notice, because of salvation, we've now become servants to God. Notice, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is what? Death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can, can I point out something here? Romans 6.23 is written for believers. Romans 6 is talking about sanctification of believers. Romans 7 is talking about sanctification of believers. We use, we use Romans 6.23 for salvation. In reality, what Paul is emphasizing in the context, the wages of sin is still death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Practical holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. God has called us to holiness. Follow holiness without which no man can see the Lord. 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Pause there, notice. As obedient children, is there a command from the Bible that you refuse to obey? Anything in the New Testament that you refuse to obey? As obedient children. Notice he clarifies then, not fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Notice that. We're not to be fashioning ourselves according to what, the way we lived before salvation. You notice here also that holiness is not possible when we live in disobedience. Did you notice that? Holiness is not possible when we're living in disobedience to the word of God. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The word conversation there speaks of our conduct, the actions that we... Your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you say. Notice that. All manner of conversation. So, what, what we talk about, what we listen to, everything. Everything that we do is supposed to be rooted and related to holiness. Verse 16, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Quote from Leviticus. Now, I want to point out here that practical holiness is not possible without salvation. Without the empowering of God. In fact, Ephesians 1.4 says that we are chosen in Christ, that we should be holy and without blame. Think about that. God did not save you just so you could go to heaven. Did you hear what I just said? Uh, too many people have fire insurance, not true salvation. There is a difference. We are chosen in Christ that we should be holy and without blame before him. By the way, this is a work of God. Notice 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power, notice it's all based on God's power, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Has, has everything changed, anything changed in your life after salvation? After you made a profession of faith in Christ, has anything changed? It should change. I'm emphasizing 
I'm emphasizing that it's, this is a work of God. I, I've told you before that uh, my wife and I listened to a, an audio of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. I want to use an illustration from that. And um, Benjamin Franklin, by his own admission, says that he was religiously educated as a Presbyterian in his younger years. Listen to this statement. I early absented myself from public assemblies of the sect. It's like Presbyterian was just a sect of Christianity, a portion of Christianity. Sunday being my studying day. I never was without some religious principles. Did you hear what he, what he just said there? Benjamin Franklin had interest in the work of George Whitfield. He met him in 1739. He even printed his sermons in his print shop in Philadelphia. He gave money for his orphanages at least once, his orphanages in Georgia. In fact, according to his own, own uh, writings, he had, he had just a little bit of money in his pocket, and he refused. He was not going to, not going to give in to the appeals to, to help these orphans in Georgia. And the more he stood there, he said, okay, I'll, I'll give these coins. And the more he listened to George, I'm going to give these coins, until he emptied out his pocket to the point where he asked somebody else, do you have money you can loan me? Not today, because I'm giving it all to, to his work there in Georgia. Also, he gave money even to help these orphans. George Whitfield sometimes prayed for his conversion. This, this is Benjamin Franklin's own, own testimony of himself. But never, he, he never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Did you hear what I just said? Benjamin Franklin, by his own admission, said, I would never listen to his message, or the message of the gospel. His prayers were never heard. A mere civil friendship is what he said he had with George Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin never doubted these things. The existence of the deity. This is, this is from his own autobiography. That he made the world and governed it by his providence. That the most acceptable service of God was the doing good to man. That our souls are immortal. And that all crime will be punished and virtue rewarded either here or hereafter. These are things that he believed. These I esteemed, the essentials of every religion... And being to found and be found in all the religions we had in our country, I respected them all, though with different degrees of respect. Another statement he makes in his autobiography. Though I seldom attended any public worship, I still had an opinion of its propriety. Well, I didn't attend church, but, but it still was proper. And of its utility. Oh, it was useful when rightly con conducted. And listen to this statement. I regularly paid my annual subscription for the support of the only Presbyterian minister or meeting we had in Philadelphia. That makes it sound like his newspaper subscription or some magazine subscription. I paid my yearly, my yearly subscription to the Presbyterian church. I paid my dues. Occasionally, he was prevailed on, his own statement, prevailed on to attend the minister's administrations. Once for five Sundays successfully. I attended five Sundays in a row. That was amazing for me. In 1728, he composed a personal liturgy. That's what he called it. Articles of belief and acts of religion. He began to use this exclusively and went no more to assemblies by his own statement. Franklin conceived, this, this is his statement, he conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. As an unbeliever, that's his goal. As I knew, or thought I knew, what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. And so he made a list of character traits that, not just from the Bible, but from his various reading sources. Here's the list of 13 virtues that he, he wrote down in his little book that he had, of his qualities, character qualities for moral perfection. Temperance. Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. Silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. Order. Let all your things have their places. Let each part of your business have its time. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. Frugality. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself. In other words, waste nothing. Industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. 
Cut off all unnecessary actions. Sincerity. Listen to this statement. Use no hurtful deceit. Oh, okay, so, so if this deceit is not hurtful, it's okay. Think innocently and justly, and if you speak, speak accordingly. Sincerity. Justice. Wrong none by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that are your duty. Moderation. Avoid extremes. Forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. Cleanliness. That's a moral virtue, but did you know? Cleanliness is next to godliness, you know. Tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. Tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles or at accidents common or unavoidable. Chastity. Rarely use venery, which is a word that means pleasure. Rarely use venery, but for health or offspring, never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of your own or another's peace or reputation. If you know anything about Benjamin Franklin, he was a very immoral man. History declares that. Humility. Listen to this. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. Does that mean he exalted Socrates to be equal to Jesus as just some philosopher? That's his own testimony. His plan was to focus on one quality at a time until it was mastered and proceed to another until mastered and so on. Well, he didn't make it to chastity, so he must not have made it very far down his list. He has this little book where he had a page for each of his virtues. And that's a little prayer that he used as he was going through his virtues. Oh, powerful goodness. That's how he addressed God. Oh, powerful goodness. Bountiful Father. Merciful guide. Increase in me that wisdom which discovers my trust, uh, my truest interest. Strengthen my resolutions to perform what that wisdom dictates. Accept my kind offices to any other children as the only return in my power for thy continual favors to me. And then he said, I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults, what he often called errata, so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. But I had the satisfaction of seeing them diminish. He never arrived at moral perfection. Why? Why was he so immoral and wicked in his lifestyle, even though he was striving for moral perfection? Because he did not have the power of God within him to help him. So what we do today in modern day Christianity is we make excuses. I've heard this saying, it's been on bumper stickers even. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Oh, that sounds so spiritual. So humble. No, the reality is it's used as an excuse for not dealing with things in my life. We make excuses for the imperfections in holiness. Now, in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it talks about the promises of God. Let me just mention them to you for the sake of time because there's something I want to close off with here today. First of all, we, we must depend on, uh, it's dependent upon separation from unbelievers. We see that in the context. But here's the promises. First of all, the presence of God. I will be with them. I will be in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will receive you, it says in verse 17. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, I want you to notice with me uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Again, I, I don't, don't want to leave off without mentioning this here today. So let's continue. Don't become dull of hearing now. Don't become dull of hearing. I know you're getting hungry. You know. John 1 verse 11. I want you to notice something here. John 1 verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born of the will of God in the context. Born of God. He shall be my sons and daughters. Matthew 6, verse 9, talking about the Lord's prayers, as commonly called. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I want you to think about something as we close these thoughts up to here today. Does a child have any choice in the family that they're a part of? Did little Haley choose to be a part of your family? 
Did you choose to be a part of this family? None of us can choose which family we're in. I want you to think about this spiritually. We have lowered salvation to a decision for Christ. We've made it all about me and not God. Born of God, not a decision that I made. Notice me, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Again, I want you to see this. The Bible emphasizes that we are begotten of God. James chapter 1. Salvation is not a decision that we make for Christ. That's a man-centered salvation. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift, all right, we can include salvation in that. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Notice, verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Of his own will, again it says in James 1, he begat us. James chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice again, by his own mercy, by his own mercy hath begotten us again. We're not begotten because we choose Christ. First John chapter 5, verse 1. First John chapter 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, God that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. Notice it's God who begets us, not because we choose God. I want you to notice this again in uh, John 17. I want for us to honestly think about what is eternal life. John chapter 17, what is eternal life? We, we often have equated eternal life to being this decision that I make for Christ. I chose Christ. I decided to have Christ. In fact, evangelists, popular, big name evangelists will say, decide to follow Christ today. Decide, come on, come on down right now. Decide to follow Christ. So are they saved? Not necessarily. John 17 verse 1. Here's Jesus' own words as he prays to his heavenly father. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life. Notice, give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Where's anything about a decision for Christ in that passage? If all you have is some decision that you have to follow Christ, you better check out the basis of your salvation. Can you honestly say that God beget, begat you? Think about that. It's not all about you. It's all about him. I'm not teaching Calvinism. I am not teaching Calvinism because if you don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, repent of, of your faith toward of, of your sin toward God and believe in Jesus Christ, it's not going to happen. It is still dependent on repentance and faith, not a decision. In fact, there's a book that I've been wanting to read, Decisionism, Today's Apostasy. The titles that intrigued me. We have so many big-name preachers today. Make a decision for Christ. Come down to the altar. Make a decision for Christ right now. Well, I thought John 1 talks about receiving. Yeah, the Bible tells you receive him through faith in what Jesus Christ has already done. It's not a decision that you make. What is eternal life? That we may know 
thee, the only true God. Eternal life, life is not just living forever. It's knowing God. We have made, made salvation the decision for Jesus Christ. A person who is begotten of God will want to be like his holy father. I'm going to say that again. That's the whole basis of why I emphasize that. Somebody is truly born of God, begotten of God through repentance and faith, will want to be like his holy heavenly father. If there's absolutely no desire for that, you don't have eternal life. Is that not what we just read? I know you might have made a decision. You might have walked down an aisle, prayed at an altar, gone through all of those things. But unless you have repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ, you're not born of God. So many preachers today have totally belittled and removed repentance from their message. Nothing ever changes. That tells me it's a false profession of faith. Let me ask you, do you have a desire to know? Here's eternal life. That's what Jesus said, to know God the Father. To know. That's how we know. That's how we know if we have true salvation. I'm not talking about, yeah, you go, go to church. Unbelievers go to church every week. All over America and all around the world. You being here does not mean indicate that you're a Christian. If, if, here's the true test. To know God, the Father, Lord Almighty. And I have a desire to be holy like my Heavenly Father. To know Thee, Holy Father, Righteous Father. Those are the titles that Jesus uses in chapter 17. To know Thee, the Almighty God. Lord, I pray that You'd help us to examine our own hearts here today. Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit of God, work. If there's somebody here who's trusting in a decision that they made for Christ, a decision to follow Christ, not repentance towards you and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They talk about prayer, they said whatever. Father, help us to understand that you are the source of salvation, not our decision to follow Christ. Lord, search our hearts. Do we have a desire to perfect holiness in the fear of God? Lord, help us as we study and meditate on these things. I pray in Jesus' name.